When you read through the first 25, well, first, the 25 verses, I should say, of Jude, uh, two things will really stand out. Uh, I read it uh, through several times, and probably some of you have as well. And two things will, will, will stand out. Uh, the first, Jude drives home the urgency. I mean, this is first. This is like the theme of the book. He drives home the urgency for you and me to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. He's talking about this written book we call, the written revelation we call the Bible. He says you have to contend earnestly for that. So that's talking a lot about a tremendous amount of effort and commitment on your and my part. Because folks, the only hope for anybody to ever come to saving faith is right here. The inspired, written Word of God. And Satan knows that. And so if he can distort, uh, destroy the Word of God, and he always through the centuries tries to do that, he knows if I can do that, a lot of people are going to perish. And uh, by the way, it's also the once for all delivered faith that causes you and me to grow. You can't grow without the written Word of God. You can't grow without getting into it and letting it, as I often would say, get into you as well. In fact, Acts, when he was, uh, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, as Paul was addressing the Ephesian elders of that church, he said to them just before leaving, and now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. Right here. Why? So that by it, you may grow in respect uh, I'm sorry, uh, to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So you don't grow without the word of God. Peter also stresses the great importance of this once for all delivered faith that we call the Bible, the word of God in your life. When he writes these words, he says, like newborn babes long for, desire the sincere milk or the pure milk of the word, why? So that by it you may grow thereby in respect to salvation. When he concludes his second letter, Second Peter, he does so with these words. He says, but grow. How do you grow, Peter? In the grace and knowledge, right here. In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, it's no wonder then that Satan does everything that he can to destroy the Bible. He does absolutely everything he can to do that. If he can't destroy the Bible, then he's going to what? distort it. He's going to distort it. It's teaching. His two main purposes are for blaspheming God, number one, and secondly is for keeping all the unsaved people blind and lost because he knows that the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And he will do so. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of truth or the written revelation of God that once for all delivered a revelation here in the Bible. Think for a moment about the church of Ephesus. Tremendous church, you know that. Tremendous church. Uh, it's thought that probably Aquila and Priscilla, who were great Bible teachers, probably started the church. And then Paul came along, and he spent three years there in Ephesus. And in fact, he even started a Bible school, if you please, a Bible college there. And for three years, he taught the people of Ephesus about the Word of God. Remember now, he's an apostle, so he's uh, teaching them the Old Testament. He's giving them revelation that God is giving to him as well, that finally gets written down, like the book of Ephesus, or Ephesians, for example, as well. Not only that, you had uh, Apollos, and he was a great evangelist and teacher as well, and and he was there in uh, Ephesus for a while. We know from First Timothy that uh, Paul had sent 
his disciple Timothy back to Ephesus and uh, that he was the pastor of that church for a period of time. And the church fathers tell us that after the great apostle John had gotten off the Isle of Patmos, that he also was, uh, his home of residence was there in Ephesus. So you talk about a church that was greatly blessed by the great Bible teachers of the first century. The the church of Ephesus was. And yet I would ask you this question, and of course, John or the Lord addresses that church in the book of Revelation, the very first of those seven churches. I'd ask you the question, where is the church of Ephesus today? It's gone doesn't exist. What happened? Exactly what Jude is talking about. And by the way, you're very much aware, I'm sure, that many, many churches have closed their doors for many reasons. One is because uh, they've gone into error, for example. Another is because of discord, that uh, division and so forth in the church. I mean, Satan is out to destroy the church, especially if they're being true to the Word of God. He doesn't like that. He knows what that means because God uses His Word. I think about uh, John and Charles Wesley. Back in the 1700s, and you all know John and Charles Wesley, John was a great evangelist and Bible teacher, and West, uh, Charles, he wrote many of these hymns that we sing. But uh, those two men, they started uh, in, in the universities, in the colleges, they began to get little groups together, and they had what they had, their Bible studies and, and their prayer times together. And they were so methodical about it that the people, the other students, called them Methodists. Not only that, God, he mightily uh, moved under uh, uh, upon John and Charles Wesley, and there was another great that uh, merged with them, and that was the great uh, uh, teacher and evangelist George Whitfield. And we're talking about, uh, for example, John Wesley. Uh, I think it was 40,000 different messages that he delivered. And he would go in the worst of the storms by horseback or on, on uh, foot. And he would go to those places. And because uh, they wouldn't let him preach uh, under the Anglican thing uh, in, the, uh, in the churches, uh, he found the crowds would come to him out in the barns and in the squares and so forth. And he would go out there. It didn't matter whether the rain or shine or snow, he preached. And boy, God mightily took the continent of uh, England as well as the continent of the of the new uh, colonies in America and using uh, John uh, Wesley and and Charles as well for that matter and George Whitfield God literally shook those continents bringing thousands upon thousands to saving faith well, as a result of that, churches began to form, and they were called Methodist churches. And I think about the thousands upon thousands of people that God brought to saving faith. I mean, they were in love with the Lord. They were in love with Charles's music, if you please. And they met together to worship the Lord. I'd ask you today, if you go to a United Methodist Church, what are you going to find? What are you going to find? They now declare in their their seminaries and in their churches, this is no longer the inspired, authoritative written word of God. Where does that go? I'll tell you where it goes. Then they say, well, wait a minute. God did not mean that homosexuality or lesbianism is a sin, or for that matter, really almost anything else. I suppose murder might be one that's considered a sin and so forth. And so what happens? Finally now, they are ordaining homosexuals and lesbians, both as their pastors as well as bishops in their churches today. You can read about it, folks. It's it's widespread. What happened? You see, Satan, he is saying, I'm going to destroy this book. 
I'm going to destroy its authority in churches. And that's one of the main emphatic messages, of course, as you read this little uh, 25 uh, verses of Jude that we're looking at here this morning. By the way, what then becomes of those people who sit in those churches? You think about how sobering and serious this is. What, what becomes of them? I mean, by the thousands today, they're in those churches and many, many other churches like them that have jettisoned the authoritative written word of God. And they sit there, and if you ask them, do you think you're saved? They'd say, yeah. Do you think that when you die, you're going to go, to, oh yeah, I believe that. See what Satan has done? It's a serious thing. And so he challenges us here uh, with the uh, uh, defending uh, the once for all or earnestly contending for the once for all delivered faith. But that's the first thing we should stand out and grab our attention when we read Jude's letter. It's just how important and vital it is to you and me to give ourselves wholly to the battle for the Bible. Somebody wrote a little book called The Battle for the Bible as the authoritative word of God. The very eternal salvation of souls and keeping them out of hell depends upon your doings. And by the way, you don't hear much preaching anymore about hell, do you? I ordered a book. We get a few things coming through the office. I said, yeah, I wanted that. It was by the Church of God, Why There's No Heaven or Hell. I got it and I read it last night. Very interesting. Why There's No Heaven or Hell. How interesting. See what I mean? My. And so the very eternal salvation of souls and keeping them out of hell depends upon our doing so. And Satan and his legion of fallen angels are relentless. They're relentless in their ongoing attack as they seek to destroy and distort this once-for-all faith handed down to the saints by God. But there's a second major theme. You can't miss it. 25 verses. Obviously, they didn't have verses back then, but 25 verses we have today. And you can't miss that second major theme uh, that's in Jude's letter. And that is God's intense, I mean, it is an intense fiery judgment he is reserved for these apostate teachers who have committed themselves to attack God's authoritative written revelation we call the Bible and who lead God's people into error as well as multitudes into damnation. You cannot miss how intensely God expresses himself toward these false teachers. And by the way, I want to add this. Although it's primarily focused on the false teachers, anybody who hears the message of salvation and that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died on the cross for their salvation and walks away or turns away from it, God says that intense judgment is upon them as well. So that's the application here throughout the Bible too. In verse 4, now to the book, verse 4, he says they were long beforehand. Talk about something. Long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. In verses 5-7, through God uses three examples of His outpoured judgment as an example of what kind of intense judgment He has in store for these false teachers. He killed off that first generation He brought out of Egypt. Every one of them except for just two. Joshua and Caleb who were men of faith. And what intense judgment he placed upon or poured out upon and will pour out upon those certain group of fallen angels that we talked about back in Genesis 6 and whatever they did there. And he says he has what? He has placed them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then consider what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. God says her judgment 
of destroying them with fire and brimstone was exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And he especially is referring to what awaits these false teachers who have known the truth and then chosen to turn away from that truth and attack his written revelation we call the Bible. Very serious thing here. This is God and his view now of what he, or verdict of what he will do to these men and women as well. But God is not through expressing himself concerning these apostate teachers. In this little letter of Jude, verse 13 says, they are wandering stars. You know what that is? That's a shooting star. Bright for a minute and then gone. For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. In verse 15, God tells us that way back in time and history, through Enoch, even before Noah and the worldwide flood, that the Lord is going to come and execute His fiery judgment upon all the wicked men that do this, that have fallen away or turned away from the truth and are teaching error. And I might add the wicked women that engage in that apostasy as well, because they're included in that. So you see two major impacting themes in Jude. First, the necessity for you to be 100% committed to this battle for the Bible. And secondly, God's 100% commitment to judge every false teacher who sets himself, herself against the Bible and God's revealed truth. Both of these themes are set before you in great intensity. And that brings us then this morning to this morning's message, identifying the false teachers. You're going to find this rather interesting, I think. Identifying the false teachers. And we begin with uh, reading verses 8 through 10. That's the section we're going to be dealing with this morning. Verses 8 through 10, let me read them to you. Yet, in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesty. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Another example of his intense view of what awaits them. We begin this morning with their method of claiming divine authority. If you have an outline, you can use that in your bulletin, if you would like to. Their method of claiming divine authority. And at first, you need to go back and realize, they have crept in unnoticed. It's always that way. I mean, these guys are smooth and subtle. It's intriguing to me because I don't really, maybe it's the channels we don't get, I don't know, but I don't... uh, watch uh, a lot of uh, uh, religious broadcasting on television. But masses of people do. And I don't know how much discernment they have when they listen to them. I mean, if they're sending money that way, I'd say they have very little discernment, okay? But uh, it is just amazing how, how much is out there and all the different views and so forth. And there's a lot of what Jude's talking about that goes on, on the uh, over the airwaves here. So keep that in mind. But they've crept in unnoticed. They know that in order to gain a hearing or a following, they have to get into a position of authority. They've got to somehow convince you that they're very important, that you pay attention to them and you listen to what they have to say. They've got to do that somehow. By the way, everywhere that Paul went and established a church, these guys followed right behind him. 
seemed like he was always having to write back and talk to the church and straighten them out because these guys were there. An example of that is First and Second Corinthians. He talks about them. In fact, they really came in and, and undermined his apostolic authority and even his ability to preach. You talked about uh, a person that brings a message that's not really worth listening to. They thought that of Paul, and that's what they tried to say. And Paul says, well, I, I don't come in with great words, but I do come in with the power of the Spirit. But this is what happened in those churches back then. I'm just sharing because Bob was talking about Luke uh, this morning in Sunday school. Some of you didn't get here because your clocks weren't set right. But okay, next next Sunday, Bob, there's no excuse for them. They need to be here. That's right. Okay. Well, verse 12 says, these are the men who are hidden reefs. That's interesting. A hidden reef in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. Now, you know what a reef is out there. And uh, the the ships have to be very careful because they'll rip out the bottom of the ship and they'll sink. But he says, how how smooth and clever, though. This is a love feast. Man, everybody's welcome to the love feast. Come on. And they're so glad to be there. And they feast with you without fear. See, they, they're making inroads into the church. By the way, don't think of a building like this because it wasn't that way. It's probably in a home somewhere, in a house, different houses there. And it's a lot easier to probably do that in a house than it is in a building like this. But it also, as you know, happens in uh, churches as well like this. And then verses 17 and 18 says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what did the apostles tell you? That they were saying to you, In the last time there will be what? Mockers. You believe that garbage? I mean, you, you, believe, you really believe that? And boy, that really happens in the schools, doesn't it? Dare to stand up and say, well, I don't believe abortion is right. And what's this black lives matter thing? I thought white lives and, and all the other lives mattered as well. I thought the lives of unborn babies mattered. Beautiful with uh, Stephanie and those little little precious little lives, huh? But 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 you say, you, you dare stand up. We, we had a, a fellow, well, your, your grandson. And he said, boy, if, I, if I'm in a class like that and I make a statement like that, uh, there's gangs up there and we're liable to, they're liable to take action against me. I mean, that's the kind of deal you, you talk about. See, mockers. Why? They want to shut you down. And, and notice how they do this here. Uh, look at verse 16. These are grumblers. Finding fault. Oh, finding fault. Following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, proudly. I know what I'm talking about. Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That's what's going on. It's interesting how they operate. You need to see that. And Jude wants us to be aware of that. Well, number two, they come as a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. Oh, very interesting today. These people come as a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. Look at verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming... How interesting. Those words, by the way, in the same way, refer back to in the same way as that first generation that God destroyed because of their unbelief. In the same way as those fallen angels, God placed eternal bonds in darkness until the judgment of the great day. In the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed with fire and brimstone as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way as that first generation and those fallen angels and the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah fell away from God's revealed truth. In the same way, these men do the same by what? Dreaming. Dreaming. They seek to get the people to believe they have received a revelation from God. By the way, there is a lot of that going on today. I've got a revelation from God. I've been given a dream from God. 
I had a dream. It came from God. And who are you to tell me that my dream was not of God? God has spoken to me in a dream. Oh, I better listen to you. You must have something really important I need to hear. Listen, all I need to hear is right here. Amen? This is it right here. If somebody has had a dream, and I'm not saying God does not use dreams because I realize a lot of the people in Islamic worlds, that's how, because they don't have the word of God at all, and God will speak to them, but it's always to lead them. They generally get saved. It's always to lead them what? Right to the word of God. Somebody who has a word of God, and there they find the truth and get saved. That's a little bit different. But boy, today, you don't dare challenge somebody who has had a dream and says, God spoke to me. By the way, you be careful that God spoke to you unless you're talking about and speaking to you out of the authoritative written word of God because Satan obviously uses these dreams. They seek to get people to believe they have received a revelation from God. By the way, how many false religions, just think about it, were founded or started because somebody had a dream? By the way, even Mormonism, I'm sorry, that too, but but uh, Islam was actually, if not so much of a dream, but uh, an angel came and spoke to Muhammad, and that's how that got started. Every founder of a false religion claims to have received a revelation from God, whether it came to them through a dream or a vision, or God uh, in some other way spoke to them. Those false teachers in the church Jude was writing to had or were trying to convince the Christians that God had spoken to them in a dream. That's how they planned on gaining a hearing or a following. Their dream became their credential of authority, if you please. Anyone who brought or, or anyone who bought into that would give them their listening ear and would heed their false teaching. By the way, you have to remember they didn't have the scriptures back then, did they? They had the Old Testament. But I don't even know how many of the new churches would have copies of that. And then the apostles go around and God was speaking to them, but it took a while before that got to be put down in print and the churches would be able to get that as well. So, hey, I've had a dream. You can see how deadly and dangerous that would be. And Satan would move right in and use that. And, of course, we know he did. Well, thirdly, in your outline of the scriptures, the method of claiming divine authority, the scriptures warn us of these specific individuals. The scriptures warn us of these specific individuals. And I'll have you write down the text I'm going to have you uh, read, or I'll read and you can listen. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. Moses wrote these words, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. Now notice next, what's next? And the sign or the wonder comes true. During the tribulation, that's going to be a big thing, if not even now. A sign or wonder comes true concerning what he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods. And it's so subtle, it may not be put that way, but that's what will be going on. Whom you have not known. I think of the angel Moroni who visited Joseph Smith. And let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Let's go to the next part. And Bob, this is exactly what you were talking about in the temptation of Jesus this morning. For the Lord your God is testing you. What? The Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. And you shall keep 
His commandments, His written word. Listen to His voice. Serve Him and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer dreamer shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Powerful, isn't it? But there it is. That's what Jude's writing about. These people had a dream. They've invaded the church. They better be listened to. They're an authority from God. And it gets even deeper. Second scripture is 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. And you know this one. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. And there he says in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, where do you think we are now? In the later times, some will fall away from the faith. That's apostasy. That's that word there. They will fall away from the faith. You know what that means? It means they knew the faith. They knew the the word of God. They knew that salvation comes by faith alone and Christ alone and that this is the authoritative word of God. They will fall away from the faith paying attention to what? Deceitful spirits. Oh, later on we're going to find out these boys did pay attention to angels. Fallen angels. And doctrines of demons. Demons are only fall, all they are. That's fallen angels. By means of the hypocrisy of liars. So they're hypocritical liars seared in their own conscience with a branding line. There's no, there's no hope for these people. They are just seared to the core. I think of those, uh, uh, people that ran around that were the, the Pharisees and so forth that uh, were seared in their conscience toward Jesus and toward Paul and the other apostles. Good example there. And then another one, Colossians 2.18. Write that one in your notes. Colossians 2.18. Paul says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. How did they do that, Paul? In delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Whoa! Huh. Taking his stand on visions he has seen. There you are. I had a revelation. God spoke to me. You better pay attention to what I have to share with you. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Well, that's her method of claiming divine authority. You've got to have some method if you're going to make inroads in the church or among God's people. By the way, this can also be done one-on-one. If somebody you work alongside, go to school with, lives next to, whatever, in the family. And it can be done one-on-one, not just in a, in a, in a church setting. Well, now we come to the three character traits that identify them. Most interesting. Three Character traits that identify them. By the way, Jude, you might notice, he liked using threes or triplets in his letter. In verse 1, for example, he has three descriptions of those that he writes to. He's called the called, the beloved in God the Father, and the kept. Down in verse 2, he goes on and he gives them three blessings, mercy, peace, and love. And then verses 5 through 7, he uses three examples of judgment, didn't he? The judgment upon that first generation, the judgment on those certain group of angels that did something horrific back there. I think Genesis 6 mentions them. And then the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's another three triplet there. And then he has two more triplets here in verses 8 through 11. The first are these three character traits of the apostates. What are they? They defile the flesh. They reject authority. And they revile angelic majesties. And then in verse 11, we have Jude's triplet that compares them to three men. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. So let me read verse 8 as we go back now and look at that. Verse 8. Yet in the same way these men by also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. This verse gives us three character traits that identify these false teachers 
These apostates, these men who have known God's truth and then turned away from it and have rejected it and they have now become Satan's key men who infiltrate God's church undetected and begin to turn people away from God and has once for all delivered authoritative word. And notice the first trait Jude gives. They defile the flesh. You you know, that that is so so interesting, so insightful. In verse 4, Jude describes them as ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Grace of God, they turn it into licentiousness. And they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek scholar Trench says, licentiousness describes the person who acknowledges no restraints, who dares whatever his caprice and wanton petulance may suggest. Peter, in describing these apostates, goes into even greater detail. Listen to how he describes them. Listen to his description. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. I'm going to pick out a little excerpt here. Verses 2 and 3, he says, Many will follow their sensuality. Oh, that's a religion a lot of people love to embrace. That's a good one. I want a religion that lets me be sensual. And because of them, what? The way of the truth will be maligned. Well, obviously. <laughs> and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. By the way, it always came because of money. I mean, these were the itinerants that made the rounds, got in the church, got paid, and so forth. Verse 11 says, Peter says, verse 11, They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Verses 13 and 14, he continues on. I mean, Peter, he just, he just nails it down. Verses 13 and 14, he says, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. These are, they don't even do this at nighttime, folks. I mean, they, they, they have thrown this right out into the open. I'll tell you what. If you're a homosexual or a lesbian pastor or bishop, what have you done? You've thrown it out in the opening. Hey, there's no big deal. God condones this. It's okay. What have you just told the masses of people who are listening to you and who are believing in you? This is not a nighttime thing for them. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Boy, I tell you what, we like coffee in our home. We grind our own. I have my own because I don't like it as strong as Mary likes hers. But one of the things we have to be, especially when Daniel's there, we have to be careful. I hope he doesn't get this CD. Uh, there's a problem of taking the coffee cup across the carpet and spilling it. you got a stain there, a blemish there. We know what that is. Well, that's what he describes in there, right there. A stain. There, there, there are stains and blemishes reveling. They revel in their deceptions. They're decept- deceived. And they revel in this as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery. Isn't that our culture? Isn't that our generation? Isn't that our, our day? Our society? Wow. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Having eyes full of adultery that never, they never cease from sin. What a description. And in verses 18 and 19 of Second Peter 2, for speaking out arrogant words, we already saw that in verse 16 of Jude, speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome by this, he is enslaved. That's a description of these men and women. You see, when you fall into immorality and choose to condone living an immoral life, defiling the flesh, you then support and condone your sin by out and out rejecting what? The absolute authority of God's word. You have to. 
Even Paul, when he wrote Romans in chapter 5, he talked about, uh, should we sin because grace abounds? Meginatoi, may it never be. But that's what these men, hey, I'm saved, and you've heard that, and forgiven of all my sin. Well, that doesn't matter how I live. I can just go out and do whatever I want. And there was a philosophy, and we won't get into that right now, that was going around the churches purporting that. That's why Colossians, by the way, was written. Same reason. I think about how many uh, self-appointed Bible scholars and well-known television pastors and evangelists do you and I know who ultimately exposed, they were exposed for living immoral lives. A lot of them, right? And if Jews' description of them is correct, who can be surprised? Because look at verse 19. Verse 19. He says, These are the ones who cause divisions worldly-minded. What's next? Devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit to control their wild passions because they're not redeemed. Devoid of the Spirit. If they don't have the Holy Spirit in them, how can they restrain the passions of the flesh? So they defile the flesh. That's the first characteristic of these people. Given enough time, truth will come out. Number two, they reject authority. And it falls right suit. We've already talked about it. They reject authority. Judas already stated that in verse 4. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if they're going to turn grace into lasciviousness and just do whatever they want and say it's okay, then they have to deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. If you choose a moral life, you're going to have to reject authority. And here it speaks of the divine authority. This is God's authority. Peter tells us these people secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. doesn't mean they were saved. It just means they know the truth and have turned away from it. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. That's, that's strong. Let me say that again. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Not just throw it off. No, they despise authority. Who are you to tell me that I'm living in sin? Who are you to tell me that this is wrong? You do away with the absolute authoritative written word of God, and from that point on, listen, anything goes. Just anything goes. Here's an example of God's authoritative written word and how it clashes with today's culture. And that includes what often goes on in the church, and so we need to be aware of that. Look with me at Ephesians 5, verses 5 through 8. It's interesting that Paul had to write about it back in his day, and it's certainly very, very relevant for our day. Ephesians 5, I'm going to read 5 through 8. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, For this you know with certainty. Hey, mark that down. This is something you and I, Really, really, absolutely no. What is it, Paul? That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's pretty absolute. That's a little bit on the frightening side. You mean I can't live my immoral life and get to heaven or get into the kingdom? Well, then he goes on here. Let no one deceive you. Oh, you mean there's a possibility that I could be deceived? Another frightening statement. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's what he's talking about in Jude, about these false teachers. The wrath of God being poured out. His fiery judgment. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. I love this part. This is good. I'm glad to have this in there. For you were formerly darkness. That's how you lived. You, you, you maybe come out of that life, he said. But now... But now you are children, or you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Would you say that is an important section of scripture for today's 
culture, churches. And yet it's interesting how churches can just fill up with people that live that life and never even get under conviction. That's how frightening it is. So when you leave the authority of the written word of God, that's what happens. Boy, it's frightening. Number three, not only do they defile the flesh and reject authority, and by the way, if you live that kind of life, you have to reject the authority of the word. That's why, by the way, if you find yourself struggling with that, you ought to get in and start reading the Bible and say, God, speak to me. Just please, please help me. Speak to me out of the written word. Convict me of my sin. Show me where I am in sin. And have him convict you because that's what he wants to do. That's a, that, that's part of healing. That's part of cleansing. Let him do that. But if you stay away from the written word of God, obviously you're not going to be too concerned, are you? That's what so many do. Number three. Now we really get into the depth of it. This is really something else. They revile angelic majesty. <laughs> what? These guys come into the church and they revile angelic majesty. Wow, not only do they seek to impress you with their dream or vision they say they've received from God himself, they also have had encounters with angels. And you know what? I believe they have fallen angels called demons. Paul told Timothy, we saw that, First Timothy 4, in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And according to Deuteronomy 13, we saw that these false people, prophets and dreamers might even give you a sign or a wonder that actually transpires. Now here in Jude 8, the word revile means blaspheme. Man, I'm somebody of power and authority. That angel came to me, man, I blasphemed him. Boy, did I send him down the road. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, you did. I think what he did is he entered you and now you're his slave, his servant. So the word revile means to blaspheme. Peter also talks about their reviling angels. This must have been a strong calling card with these people that kind of supported their authority from God. They're so awesome and mighty that they blaspheme angels. Here's how Peter describes them. He says they're daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Evidently, Peter and Jude have been reading the same thing. Remember Colossians 2.18? Paul warns the church about individuals who come trying to gain a foothold in other people's lives by saying they worship angels. Here, they revile and blaspheme them. Well, Jude has more to say about this down in verses 9 and 10. Let me read that. Verses 9 and 10, but Michael, the archangel, when dispute, who disputed, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That probably could be put under this, uh, the three characteristics because there's so much in it. I made it a main heading in your outline. And so let's look at that. Their contrast with Michael, the archangel and their destruction. Their contrast with Michael the archangel and their destruction. What we know about Michael. Let's start there. What do we know about this guy, this angel? Well, his name means who is like God. That's what his name means. He's the only angel, by the way, in the Bible that's called an archangel. However, there are three angels and only three that are given names in the Bible. Uh, of course, there's Michael here. There's Lucifer that we know better as Satan, perhaps. And then there's Gabriel. And so Gabriel may also be an archangel, and, and maybe even Lucifer, Satan, uh, is an archangel. We don't know. We're not told that, but it stands to reason that probably those three are all archangels. Now, the idea of archangel, it means he's chief. 
there's an order of the angelic being hosts, and Archangel is at the top of that order, evidently having power over the others in some way. Michael, by the way, is mentioned in Daniel 10 and Daniel 12, and there we find out he is in, in significantly, he is to protect the people or nation of Israel. So guess what? He's still around and has work to do, doesn't he? So he's a protector of Israel. In fact, in Revelation 12, we meet him again. Revelation 12 will be at the very midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, and there is going to be war in heaven, and Michael and his angels will war against Satan and his demons, his angels, and they will overcome Satan and his demons and cast them down to the earth, and that becomes the midpoint of the tribulation, beginning the great tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, because Satan now knows I have but a very little time left. And one of the things that he will do at that point is he will go to his number one man, who will be the Antichrist and the false prophet and so forth, and all hell will break out literally upon this world. That's tomorrow's headlines, tomorrow's news. So we find Michael mentioned there. But number two, Michael's encounter with Satan over Moses' body. I just read that, verse 9. Michael's encounter with Satan over Moses' body. Of course, this is another reference to in the scripture to Michael the archangel. And here he's called an archangel. Since this letter by Jude is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, we know this had to be a true account. But you won't read about it anywhere else in the Bible. Moses didn't write it. Joshua didn't write it. It just is nowhere except Jude who God uh, gave him this insight, and Peter must allude to it from what I read before. We don't believe, though, that it's truly inspired and it's history that took place. Now, we can only speculate why Satan wanted the body of Moses. I guarantee you he ain't going to want my body. You're not laughing. There you go. But for some reason, he wanted the body of Moses. We can only speculate, and I gather probably he wanted to make an icon out of it. He just like uh, the the uh, church. If you get that, please, and let them know that I'm not available. Okay. He he wanted to make an icon out of that. He uh, he he wanted uh, people, to evidently, I think, to worship him, just like they have uh, 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 pieces of the uh, wood of the cross and and Mary's milk, and you can go on and on. That you know, they make icons out of. I'm gathering that's probably what he wanted it for, but we don't know. We're not told. But uh, one thing about it, God said you can't have it. Whatever it was, we know it was not good. God said no. So number three, what we are to learn from this angelic encounter though. What do we learn from this angelic encounter? Even though Satan was seeking to do something that God forbade, the body of Moses for whatever reason, and even though God sent his highest angel to put a stop to Satan's quest, Michael, the archangel, did not dare, follow this, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. These guys did. They don't have any problem with that. But said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael kept his place of submission. I'm only here as a messenger of the Lord to do his will. I have no authority to rail against you, to blaspheme you, even though you are a fallen angel out of the will of God. If God's archangel Michael dared not pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, I wonder why Christians think they have that right to do so today. Ever think about that? What authority do we have to command Satan? Get that? What authority do we have to command Satan or one of his fallen angels under his authority to leave or to stop whatever he is doing? Interesting thought. Now, I don't know if you brought it out, but you probably did, at least in the scripture. In Matthew, he says to Satan when, when Jesus is being tempted, he says, he pronounced it, he, 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 uh, 
he, he uh, uh, quotes scripture to him that fit the occasion. They said, go. There's that part. But this is more. These guys are blaspheming these even fallen angels, if you please. Let me ask you a question. Did God or did not God send Satan to Job? What do you, you can answer that. Did, did God send Satan to Job or did he not send him? Yeah. Well, why didn't Job just say, get out of here. I revile you. Did not Jesus say to Peter, I'm turning you over to Satan. No problem. Just revile him. Tell him to get out of here. No, he needed to repent and stay close to the Lord, as we know. Now, here's one for you. Ah, here's one. A messenger of Satan showed up to what? To be a thorn in the flesh of Paul. But no problem, Paul. Just revile that sucker. Command him. I command you in the name of Jesus. Be gone. Never did. He prayed about it. We live in a day of irreverence, don't we? Irreverence toward God. And in one sense, irreverence toward angelic beings. Even, if you please, Satan himself. People going around and uh, saying, I have the power and authority to command Satan to do this. You don't know what God is doing for, through Satan or these fallen demons. And they can only go as far as God allows them. But you don't know. Think soberly about that by way of application. Because it's going on today. People are out there reviling Satan and fallen angels and telling them exactly what they are to do and so forth. Well, these men who had crept into the church, they not only blaspheme God by rejecting the absolute authority of his written word as they live out their immoral lives denying his lordship, they revile or blaspheme these angels. Even the archangel Michael left it to the Lord to rebuke Satan. But he himself would not overstep his authority as an archangel and rebuke Satan. And I think we have to be very careful that we also do not find ourselves doing the same thing. You know, I like to go up to people like you and just put my hands on you. And they would say, be healed. I know you'd like me to do it too. But you know what? That may not be God's plan for David. I don't know what God's plan for David is. I can pray for David. But there are people going around that. And by the way, are they not? And, and hey, you send them your money. Put your hand on the television or what? And they will pray for you and they will heal you. Nonsense. But boy, how we desperately get sucked into that vacuum of believing that stuff and longing for that stuff. It's no wonder in Africa that so many are going toward that kind of a movement because everybody wants to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, don't they? They want that. And so they will desperately do anything. That's what we're talking about here, folks. That's what we're talking about. Well, that brings us to number four, the certain destruction of these false teachers. The certain destruction of these false teachers. Verse 10, but these men revile the things which they do not understand. (laughs) I'll show that to you in a minute. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Peter brings the same thing out, by the way, in Second Peter 2. So by the very things these false teachers think they know and understand, reviling angels, by those very things they are being brought to ruin. Look at Acts 19, verses 11 and following. Acts 19, 11 and following. This is a great example of that. I would have loved to have been there. Acts 19, Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of, hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. This is cool. 
man, I want that power and that glory as well. So they go do this. Seven sons of one Sceva, Jewish chief priests, were doing this. <laughs> Here it is. I love it. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. <laughs> wow. There's an example of what we're talking about. It didn't work for them, though, did it? I'm going to conclude this morning's message with a quote from Michael Green. I'm sure probably none of you know who he is, but boy, what a good quote. He writes these words, In contrast to the archangel who, out of respect for the law, surrenders himself and his case to God, these people speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. Their attacks on the angels who mediated the law show that they have no proper understanding of angels as a ministers of God who is both lawgiver and judge. These dreamers no doubt claim visionary insights into the world of angels, and yet their behavior is the very opposite of the angels. He's talking about the righteous angels here. They despise and reject the law which the angels revere and guard. How little they understand. Like the men of Sodom, they're engrossed in lust and fail to recognize the angels. If a man is persistently blind in spiritual values, deaf to the call of God, and rates self-determination as the highest good, then a time will come when he cannot hear the call he has spurned, but is left to the mercy of the turbulent instincts to which he once turned in search of freedom. And those instincts, given free reign, are merciless. Lust, when indulged, becomes a killer. With these three warnings of verses 5 through 7 before them, Jude's readers are urged to beware of the spiritual decadence of the false teachers. This pervaded their whole personalities. Physically, they became immoral. Look at this. Physically, they became immoral. Intellectually, they became arrogant. Spiritually, they denied the Lord. The judgment of God will catch up with them as surely as the slaughterhouse with the cattle. What a, what a, what a statement. The judgment of God will catch up with them as surely as a slaughterhouse with the cattle. The whole thrust of Jude's letter constitutes a stirring call to awake to moral integrity, intellectual humility, and spiritual sensitivity. End of quote. With that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little letter. There's so much in it. Lord, we have every reason to be concerned about the church at large. We've already seen the downfall of, like the Ephesus church that was so strong, so blessed by great leaders and teachers, preachers. We've seen that with the Methodist movement with John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and how you brought thousands upon thousands to saving faith. And they were glad to meet in the Methodist churches that were formed and they grew spiritually and mightily and many, many more came to saving faith. What a tremendous movement of God. And yet, Father, we can go to England today to see these great cathedrals, beautiful but empty. And it can happen here. It can happen at First Baptist Church of Arlington. It can happen in each individual life. How easily we can be led away from the once for all delivered authoritative word of God. I pray, Father, for discernment for us. I pray for us to be humble. I pray that we will be morally pure. I pray that, Lord, we will be spiritually very, very close to you. Use your word, I pray, to help us grow spiritually and protect this body of believers. Protect this church. May you be pleased to bless it, to bless us and our families. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and glory. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.